Welcome back to Life, Liberty, and Law. It's 2022, a new year, a new season for the show. We're thrilled to be joined today by returning friend of the show, Wesley J. Smith. You'll remember Wesley Smith from previous episodes and also from his great writing at National Review and at Discovery Institute, where Wesley is the chair of the Center on Human Exceptionalism. We're going to speak today with Wesley about a new initiative he's launched at the Center on Human Exceptionalism. It's a podcast called Humanize. He's done many episodes so far. We're going to hear from him about Humanize, about some of the folks he's spoken with and uh, and what's next for the show. We're also going to talk about the upcoming Winter Olympics, the involvement with the Chinese Communist Party, what the United States can do uh, or maybe is choosing not to do so far on human dignity issues, human rights issues pertaining to the Olympics. And finally, we'll look ahead a little bit to pro-life issues in the upcoming midterms and state legislative sessions to get Wesley's insight on all of that. I am Tom Shakley. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. All right, welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law, coming to you from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I'm solo today. We've uh, said goodbye to Anna-Claire Noblet, who is returning to her studies at Sanford University and looking ahead toward her future academic career. Uh, Anna-Claire did a great job in season 12 of Life, Liberty, and Law, and we're looking forward to a whole slate of great guests and uh, friends of the show, as well as new faces in this new season. So thanks for sticking with us, and it's good to uh, have you back. And Wesley, it's good to be back with you. It's been too long since we've had you on the show. Welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Wesley. Did you do anything fun? (laughs) I stayed quiet. (laughs) stayed quiet. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, you know, I have a tradition on New Year's Eve of not leaving more than two blocks from the house. Uh, but this time we had some friends over to our home for dinner, and they're two two doors down, so nobody had to drive in the roads. That's great. It sounds like uh, the start of a sitcom there or something, two doors down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wesley, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, and it has been a little while. Uh, you know, we've talked in the past about, um, in particular, the uh, the Chinese Communist Party and, and their you know, many, many issues when it comes to human dignity and human rights. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, we want to talk about Humanize, your great podcast. You've interviewed more than a dozen guests at this point. Tell us about the show. Oh, thank you very much. You know, I um, kind of got tired of always hearing myself talk or writing, and I wanted to to uh, explore uh, issues germane to human exceptionalism, human dignity, human duties, uh, with people who think about these issues, whether or not they agree with me. So sometimes I have a friendly debate with people. Sometimes it's uh, I have guests on who agree with me. But I've been very pleased with the quality of uh, thought that um, the people I brought onto the show have, have uh, shared with my listeners. Uh, just as an example of one whom I disagree with is uh, Zoltan Istvan. He's uh, the chief popularizer of transhumanism. And uh, your listeners may remember in 2016, he ran for president of the United States on the Transhumanist Party, and he got a lot of attention. He's really a great self-promoter because he redesigned a bus to look like a coffin. And then he went around the country uh, giving speeches, and he got media from all over the world because of that, uh, that bit. So Zoltan is just one of the, the folks you've, you've spoken with, and I've listened to a lot of the shows. Um, 
it's really, I think, a, an important thing you're doing with Humanize uh, in speaking about human dignity issues, uh, as I hear it really outside of the traditional zone of, of what people think of as pro-life issues or, you know, even more narrowly, conservative pro-life issues, right? Yeah, I, I'm trying to, um, you know, uh, we, we talk about human exceptionalism as where human rights meet human responsibilities. And that, um, that kind of encompasses a great deal of, of the human community that are often not addressed with regard to pro-life advocacy. Uh, so uh, another example would be uh, Gary Francione, the animal rights fanatic who uh, promoted veganism. And, and we had a discussion about animal rights versus animal welfare. I support animal welfare. He hates animal welfare because he doesn't think that animals uh, should be owned by anyone for any purpose. I talked to um, a fellow in the news uh, as he was getting into some trouble with his uh, university, um, Aaron Kierty, uh who uh, has uh, been fired uh, by UC Irvine uh, because he refuses to get a vaccination because he already has natural immunity because he survived COVID. So we had a very long discussion with him about that issue. I talked, uh, my first guest uh, was Sam Brownback. Uh, the former ambassador for religious freedom, former senator from Kansas, former governor of Kansas, uh, and we talked about the importance of religious freedom. Uh, I've uh, spoken with Catherine Jean Lopez about Catholic mysticism. Uh, I've uh, really had some interesting conversations with uh, Nina Shea, for example, on religious persecution in China. And since we'll be talking about China, those issues, uh, maybe you and I can discuss some of them. So we really run the gamut, and I've got some future guests uh, planned that I, I think listeners will like. And I'm hoping people will listen to Humanize right after they're done listening to your podcast. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and we'll, of course, link to to your show here in the show notes for the episode. Um, humanize.today is the web address. www.humanize.today is the address for the Center on Human Exceptionalism's uh, both blog, uh, which you're the primary author for, and the podcast as well. So if you want to subscribe to that podcast, just go to Humanize Today to do it. And of course, Wesley, for full disclosure here, I am also a, a research fellow at the Center on Human Exceptionalism. You are indeed. You and a, a proud listener and fan a of A very podcast. valued research fellow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these, these issues, right, are uh, encompassing far more so than, than we think of, again, just inside the, the pro-life world. I think one of the tragedies of uh, uh, the polarization of our time is the way in which um, really the the issues have become identified with one political party. I know yeah. there are folks out there like, um, you know, we think of Democrats for Life, right? And Kristen Day is doing amazing work there, but she doesn't have that many allies on the Hill to work with anymore on the Democratic side, right? Because they'll be ostracized and so forth. And what I found, by the way, in terms of Democrats for Life uh, in my travels around the country for literally decades, is there is a strong Democrat for life presence at the state and local level. Mm, yeah. But once they get to the national level, uh, there are very few. Right. And that's what was surprising, I think, about, you know, even uh, Joe Biden's campaign, right, as you saw, if there was anyone who would have had the wherewithal or the institutional political capital to not cave in uh, on things like the Hyde Amendment uh, or sort of, you know, the, the needless extremism um, that would lose centrist votes. It would have been Joe Biden, right? There's somebody who's been in the Senate for 40 plus years, who's been in politics for half a century, most of his life, and he could have just said no. And he still would have gotten the nomination, right? Uh, he still would have won the presidency probably, uh, but he didn't. And so it's like if, if someone even with his political capital can't, how can we expect somebody on a state or local level 
to do the same. It, it's very difficult, and I, you know, I'm not into into um, partisan politics. I stay out of it. But Wisely. a lot of people who I've met in the pro-life world uh, would probably vote Democrat, but for the life issue. And right. I think the Democrats are unaware of the votes they lose by becoming so dogmatic and, and very radical on that issue. I mean, the current Democrat platform calls for abortion through the ninth month, uh, does uh, opposes the Born Alive Infant Protections Act kind of uh, uh, legislation that would protect babies from infanticide. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's remarkable to see. Yeah, you know you're right, and you think of uh, you know we've spoken in the past with uh, uh, Dr. Chad Pecknold at Catholic University, and you know he had pointed out in uh, the episode with him that uh, you know really you scramble the political uh, equation when you realize that the key votes on the Supreme Court that handed us abortion jurisprudence as we know it today, from Roe through its upholding in Casey. All the key votes came from Republican-appointed justices, right? And some of the key pushback, I mean, Casey itself, right, the Pennsylvania laws at the heart of Casey, were introduced by a Democratic governor. Uh, and so, you know, when you just look at the history, it's, it's really not as cut and dry. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and also with regard to uh, the issue I'm more involved with than abortion, assisted suicide and euthanasia, uh, you find that the uh, push for that, legalization generally not always comes from democrats and and some pushback comes from democrats for example disability rights activists who tend to be much more liberal politically than than uh, generally i'm speaking obviously pro-lifers who tend to be more conservative um and and uh but the the disability rights folk are are really standing athwart this this uh, euthanasia drive and saying wait a second we're the targets and, and uh, they have in many ways kept some blue states that would have otherwise, in my view, legalized assisted suicide from doing so. Yeah, and Wesley, I mean, I think we'll talk more a little bit about specific issues toward the end of the uh, conversation here in terms of the midterms and the political implications in the states. But I'm curious, you know, when it comes to that full spectrum of life issues, you are, I think, the leader in America uh, in the pro-life world who has, has forced the whole pro-life community to think really across the spectrum, to not just let pro-life mean reductively abortion, right? But to think well, about assisted suicide yeah, and patients' that. rights. Uh, yeah, I've worked at that. I remember um, the first time I addressed the uh, National Right to Life Convention, and it was in Orlando, Florida, as I recall. This is some time ago. And the place was packed uh, until my speech on, which was a keynote, on euthanasia, and then half the place was empty. <laughs> and I have to admit, I got a little angry. And I said, you know, if you're, <laughs> I remember saying this thinking, well, I'll never get invited back again. I said, if you don't care as much about the elderly uh, woman in the nursing home, uh, the patient dying of AIDS, as you do unborn babies, then don't call yourself pro-life, call yourself pro-cute. And uh, I, I said it relatively angrily, and uh, because I thought, if anybody should understand the urgency of anti-euthanasia, anti-assisted suicide, it would be pro-lifers. And I thought, <laughs> you know, bye. It was nice talking to you guys, but um, uh, actually, the leadership was very pleased that I did that. So <laughs> sometimes taking a risk works. <laughs> no, yeah, you need to throw that flag sometimes, right? Uh, just well, sure I that. think I think it's very easy. I mean, if you're going to be involved in these issues and you think about babies and cuddly and helpless, that's that's one 
it's an easier and it's also an emotive kind of um, attraction, if I may use that term. But sure. when you start talking about people who are elderly or sick, people with disabilities, gay people who who uh, have AIDS, or uh, people with a severe mental illness who who might be unattractive, who might not even have uh, pleasant personalities, it becomes a little more difficult because the awe uh, aspect, if you know what I'm saying, is gone. And right. But that's when it's even more important because it's based on principle. It's not based on feelings. We need to think, not feel. Thinking is what's important. And, uh, and so I really have been trying to uh, help pro-life uh, people I, and of course I speak to people who are not pro-life too but try to try to connect certain dots some people used to say well why do you care about animal rights I care about animal rights as an issue because the animal rights movement again is differentiated from animal welfare say that there's an equal worth between animals and humans well that's anti-human and that to me should uh, alarm anybody who believes in the sanctity of human life because if you start thinking of human beings as just another animal in the forest that's how we'll treat each other that's right and the same thing with radical environmentalism where you're now giving human type rights to nature rivers have rights the right to flow which would impede the ability of us to make proper use of resources so there's a lot going on in terms of the sanctity of life the dignity of life the importance of being human that go well beyond abortion and that I think people in the pro-life movement need to be aware of. Right. Yeah. And, and while it's not all reductive to politics, it really is, uh, you know, about the, the deepest aspirations of, of each human person and, and the human heart, right? The shared things, the lines that run through the heart. Uh, you know, the, the political implications of this often do come down to, in one way or the other, I think, uh, issues of control uh, or desire for it. Um, on the one end with abortion, right, there's, there's the infamous desire that, you know, if I can just control the circumstances in what, you know, whether you're married or unmarried or whether it's planned or unplanned, if I can control the circumstances of this particular pregnancy, then everything will be fine. Or if it's an elderly relative, if I can just control the circumstances of their suffering or death, then everything will be fine. Um, yeah, and, and it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a uh, utopian kind of endeavor. Um, for example, the idea, well, we can eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. Well, that's really destructive. We have a duty to mitigate suffering. Compassion means to suffer with. But if you ever come to believe you can eliminate suffering, you're not living in the real world. And the problem with utopianism is that the means tends to justify the ends, and then the means become the ends, and you end up with uh, totalitarianism, and you end up with very dark places, uh, 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 you know, the road to hell paved with good intentions and so forth. Yeah, now that's, and I think, you know, particularly with things like animal rights or nature rights, you highlight, you know, many people might hear something like that and think, well, you know, uh, the beauty of the natural world is, is in some sense, a, a human right. You know, we, we have a right uh, in a certain sense to not allow corporations or even our neighbors in whatever sense to sort of pollute or destroy, um, you know, the, the world that, uh, that we have stewardship over. But, you know, when you enshrine something like the right of a river to flow, I think of C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, famous observation that, you know, the, every increase in man's power over nature is always and everywhere the increase uh, in power of some men over other men. And that's what it, it is in practice, right, Wesley? It's, you know, to say that a river has rights is really saying that some people, uh, i.e. the most aggressive agitators, 
are going to sue, people are going to sue other people, uh, hypothetically on behalf of this river or whatever the thing is, or, or the animal, um, but it's really still two people in court, right? You're not escaping that this is right. a well, human yeah, endeavor. And, and the, the, the ir- irony uh, is that when you say that nature has rights or animals have rights, as opposed to, again, our duty to treat animals humanely, which of course is important, uh, <laughs> let's say animal rights, animals would have rights against us we would not have rights against animals and animals would not have rights against each other that proves human exceptionalism because we're the only ones who would be bound by it uh, and we're the only ones who would even understand it and i hope your listeners realize that there's actually a case right now before the highest court in new york state to have an elephant declared a person and be given a writ of habeas corpus to be released from a zoo that the point of that is to what animal rights activists say break the species barrier because what they want to do is to be able to take all animal owners maybe cattle ranchers maybe uh, medical researchers and so forth to court and the people who would be doing the suing would be the ideologues and they could bring a lot of human uh, thriving to a halt so what human exceptionalism says is that we need balance in these things We need to protect the human value, but we also have the human duty. Uh, In terms of animal use, you have to to gauge what is being the purpose of using the animal, what kind of suffering is being caused, you know, are there ways to not use the animal, and this kind of thing. Um, Here's an example of of a uh, animal abuse that I really railed against in writing and and in speeches, Um, and and it ties in with some of these other. uh, very radical agenda items that uh, there is now a push for a human right among transgender activists for biological males to be able to give birth. And of course, for biological males to be able to give birth, the idea is, well, let's transplant uteruses into their bodies so that they can experience gestation the way a biological woman would. Well, Obviously, that's very difficult, although there right now are uterus transplants for women. Um, so there was an experiment in China, and China is the place where ethics goes to die. Um, there was a, an experiment where, where researchers surgically attached rats. First, they, they transplanted a uterus from a female into the male. Then they surgically attached these animals and pregnated the ma- the the. The, the male, I'm, I, you know, I don't know whether it was how it's you hard to put it, but they point, yeah. used IVF. They implanted the, the pub embryos into the, the uterus, which was now in the male, and then eventually uh, with cesarean section uh, successfully delivered pups. And, and I said this is wrong on several, uh, reason, for several reasons, one of which is that's animal abuse. There is no excuse to right. treat rats in that fashion. Right. That is a, a terribly a cruel and inhumane uh, uh, approach, and it also is not serving a a necessary human purpose. Yeah, and, you know, you look at these issues, and, you know, I understand, you know, that we're speaking about pro-life issues and and human right to life issues across the spectrum of issues. And so, you know, I get for some people why it might be hard initially when they read your reporting at National Review or Epic Times or elsewhere to say, how does this fit in? And I think, you know, for me, it's very clear, which is, on the one end, you know, you talk about this idea of human exceptionalism, 
And as I hear it and I think about it, you know, what attracted me to the work that you did initially was, was really saying, here's a way to understand uh, in the phrase human exceptionalism, the distinctive capacity of the human person uh, as a moral agent. Exactly. Right? You, can, you can look at other animals, you can look at other aspects of our world, and you, know, you can say that, that, that the way a tree behaves in terms of providing shelter for the birds, or the way that birds behave in terms of their young, or the way you know, that uh, a wolf might take in a baby, you know, you'll see stories like that sometimes. There are parts of nature, and there are animals and creatures in nature that will show certain qualities like caring, um, but their ability to act morally um, you know, is, is, is still a fundamentally a human quality. And if we can't talk about that and differentiate it, we're going to run into all sorts of trouble. And, and as we yep. have, right, because you're talking about this case of, uh, of an elephant where there's a push by human beings to have an elephant recognized as a person in court. And there are going to be many people of goodwill uh, who will say, yeah, you know, I think for whatever reason, I think that's right, that the elephant should have that kind of recognition or protection or whatever in a human court. At the same time that because of Roe v. Wade and our jurisprudence and frankly on the whole host of other human right to life issues uh, regarding things like assisted suicide in terms of informed consent issues and other things, that human beings are not uniformly recognized as persons in court. Clearly, in yeah, the and can abortion. you imagine the screaming if uh, uh, a state passed a law or a court said, yes, a fetus can bring a lawsuit? Uh, it would break glass. Right, and, and in terms of the elephant, it, even though humans are bringing the lawsuit, the lawsuit is being brought in the name of the elephant. Right. And so the idea is that the humans are like guardians of children. So like a child can bring a lawsuit, but the child cannot bring a lawsuit in his or her own name because they're children. They're not competent to do that. So you have a guardian that does that. So what these animal rights activists are literally and quite explicitly equating, they're equating animals to children or animals to people with cognitive disabilities. And when you make that equation, in my opinion, you're being misanthropic because human beings are exceptional. We are the only moral beings in the known universe. And the reason I don't talk about uh, sanctity of life, although I talk about that, but I mean the reason I use the term human exceptionalism because I want to encompass the full uh, measure of of u- human uniqueness, which is not it, which is value, unique dignity, and the requirement to to create moral principles and act consistently therewith. So let me um, shift gears here. Just we're going to talk about the Olympics in just a moment. But one more uh, episode and, and aspect that you've talked about in Humanize uh, was your, uh, the, the issue of homelessness in your interview with yes. Jim Palmer uh, of the Orange County Rescue Mission in California. I really was struck by that episode uh, because it, it you know, uh, humanized the issue for me in a really direct way. Uh, here are people um, by the hundreds of thousands, just in California, uh, but of course across the country, who... Uh, really need our concern, our love, uh, our solidarity, and they're not getting it. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that was an important episode because um, th- these are people that we, a lot of us, and I know I have to fight the, the urge, look away from. And part of our obligation to the helpless and vulnerable uh, is to reach out to them. Now, how do you do that? This is a very difficult issue. And the reason I brought in an expert on that field is I wanted to discuss, is it just a matter of um, uh, just a matter of uh, finding affordable housing? 
Uh, and he said, no, it's not just a matter of finding affordable housing. It's a problem of addiction. It's a problem of mental illness. It's a problem of, in California, he spoke about a law that was passed, and I used to live in California, so I know this is true, where they reduced uh, any theft from 950 or under to a misdemeanor, and then uh, these very radical district attorneys uh, stopped prosecuting. And he said basically that was a license for drug addicts to steal to support their habit. So there was a lot to that discussion, and I hope your listeners will will think about listening to that conversation that Jim Palmer uh, brought to the table that I hadn't considered before. And I think it's very important because it is a scandal that the richest society in the history of the world have places uh, in some of our major cities that are destitute and squalid. I, I, uh, in 2019, I happened to be in Cairo, Egypt, and I was struck, and it really broke my heart. I said, my gosh, this city, which is in a very poverty-stricken country, is cleaner than San Francisco. Mm. Well, well, that's just scandalous, and, and that's something we have to address, and that is also part of human exceptionalism. Yeah, and I know there are some jurisdictions uh, I was just reading about in the past few weeks, uh, one particular, which I think was signed into law, um, where you know cities uh, or municipalities are criminalizing certain types of outreach to uh, the homeless, you know, in terms of making it a, a misdemeanor to to offer them food, for instance. Um, and I think you know, I'm assuming that they think this is a way to kind of solve the problem or disincentivize or, or whatever. Um, but I think of it sort of similar to you know here in Washington D.C. D.C. was one of many cities uh, that had you know major tent encampments spring up, um, really. During the coronavirus uh, initial lockdowns, and then particularly through the the summer of protest uh, before the last presidential election, and finally uh, the city's the city's response to this was first to not to have one. I mean, it was just ignoring it because it it didn't have to because most of the professional class was still working remotely. And then as things started to seem to be winding down, as certain people started to come back to the offices here in the district, uh, the mayor Muriel Bowser, you know, ordered. A clearing of the encampments. So this is, you know, they send in cops basically and others to go and just take down the tents to push people out and to push them to the margins. It's not solving the problem. I mean, it's removing them from our need to have to look at them, as you say, but that's really the and opposite. letting them stay compassion. just adds to the squalor of the neighborhood and causes greater suffering also. So it's a, it's a real conundrum. And I think it's a societal symptom of a, of a, um, culture that has lost its bearing in terms of its decency and its ethics. These are wounded people. We're going to shift gears now to talk about uh, other types of of woundedness, um, particularly uh, as inflicted by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, If the podcast hasn't yet been banned in mainland China, you know, we're going to go for it here, Wesley. Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about the Winter Olympics. So the, you know, and this is one of those, I've never paid that much attention to the Winter Olympics. They always kind of sneak up on me um, versus the Summer Olympics, but uh, the Winter Olympics are coming up. They start February 4th and go through February 20th. They're happening in, in Beijing. Um, Yep. You've written about this. You've spoken about this. Tell us from your perspective, why does this matter? How is this a human dignity issue? Well, I think it's an absolute disgrace that the Olympics are in China. Let's take a look at some of the actions uh, the Communist Party um, is forcing on uh, that country. You have genocide, literal genocide of the Uyghurs who are in Western China. They're Muslims. Um, They're being held in huge concentration camps. 
Their women are being forcibly sterilized, forced abortions, because there was an attempt to uh, basically eliminate them as a force uh, or as a, as a group in China. They are being subjected to being uh, to forced labor, slave, slave labor. They're being sent around the country, forced to work. Some of our biggest, according to some studies, our biggest uh, corporations actually benefit from slave labor, which is really ironic, uh, uh, especially when some of these same corporations, if uh, Indiana tries to pass a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, will boycott the state. Uh, you've got live organ harvesting uh, of Falun Gong. These are um, Buddhist-type practitioners. Uh, who, who It's a spiritual practice, and they have been subjected to being arrested because they won't submit to Chinese orders. They are tissue-typed, and um, then the, in the uh, black market, which isn't so black because it's certainly well-known, People go in and they are they get blood tests and then they, they find a Falun Gong who will match. They kill that person and then they take the organ and sell it to the to the organ buyer. This is a, a, an evil of almost unprecedented proportions. You have the the occupation of Tibet, the cultural genocide of Tibetan Buddhism, the suppression of Hong Kong. You have the threats against Taiwan. You have the social credit system, which is targeting Christians. Uh, among others, uh, so that uh, if you try to go to church, uh, they will have facial recognition and you will get demerits. They are forcing pastors to give um, uh, sermons that go along with Communist Party lines. If you have too many social demerits, uh, and if, for example, if you let your children go to church, which is banned, you could lose your job, you could lose your apartment, you might not be able to get medical treatment, your children might be thrown out of school. This kind of tyranny is really, I call it the Fourth Reich. And then to to know this is happening, which we do now unequivocally, there's no question about it. And then to say, well, let's just go hold the Olympics there and give um, the Communist Party the face, the respect, as if they're part of the no- normal part of the international community is disgraceful. And what the, the strongest reaction so far, and I think it's been really weak tea, is uh, Joe Biden and uh, President Biden and um, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has said they will have a, and I think Japan has joined this, they will have a diplomat boycott, which means they're not going to send the vice president to the to the games. That's nothing. So we should have had the entire people should the athletes should refuse to go. The country should refuse to send because the, the Chinese don't care about the sanctity of life. They certainly don't care about human exceptionalism, but they care about face. They care about being respected. And this would be a, a very good way to say this is unacceptable behavior. We cannot con- treat this as business as usual. But here's something that since our leaders won't do the right thing, we all can. I'm urging, and I will as we get closer to February, uh, increase this. I'm urging each and every listener to this podcast, do not watch the Winter Olympics. Do not be complicit in giving respect to such evil. You, uh, if you watch the Olympics, Winter Olympics, if you, and, and of course I, I think the ice skating's gorgeous and, and the skiing and so forth, but if you watch that, that means you care more about entertainment than you do the slaughtered Uyghurs and the, and the harvested Falun Gong and the, and the persecuted Christians. If enough people refuse to watch the Olympics and the ratings go in the tank, at least we can turn our backs collectively on this evil and let the, the world know that this kind of behavior is just not acceptable. You know, 
you've raised so many issues there, Wesley. I think it's uh, it's really helpful to have it outlined in that way because, uh, you know, these things can become just headlines, you know, the latest thing you see on Drudge or on Twitter or whatever, and come and go. And, you know, even in the confusion between administrations of, you know, Mike Pompeo's Department of State, uh, you know, saying that, uh, that uh, you know, there is a genocide and then Anthony Blinken coming in um, as the new secretary and saying, well, you know, uh, we're, we're going to kind of reset things and, and go from there. Um, there's a lot of equivocation. And I think, you know, just in terms of um, what I think of as a top line on this, we've known for a long time, we've talked about the Great Firewall of China for decades now. It's been clear. And uh, over the past year or two in the United States, there's been more and more um, firewall type activity here domestically. There's been censorship uh, on all sorts of social networks. And we often think of this as a political thing. Of course, you can't say this stuff without people immediately going to the fact that um, President Donald Trump was banned from uh, various social media networks, um, but mainly Twitter, uh, where he had 80 plus million uh, people following him. Um, to, you know, a whole, whole host of other people. I mean, and this is happening, if you're following pro-life issues, this is happening to pro-life issues every day um, where, you know, I think of live action in particular has had to work with a number of members of the U.S. Senate simply to try to get folks to the table uh, from big tech in, in California uh, to try to get some of their ads and some of their campaigns reinstated. And so we're at this point where I think, you know, you're right. I mean, I echo your call that, that individually we have to have this response and solidarity. But I think collectively we're, we've got to figure out something culturally, politically uh, for how to respond to this stuff. Uh, people want free exchange. Yeah, and the, the, pro- the, the problem is I think our ruling class and our, our lead business leaderships and even some of our scientists at universities have been – corrupted by Chinese money. I mean, the Chinese have been very, very Chinese Communist Party. And again, we have to differentiate between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. But they've been very, very clever and very uh, long-term thinkers. And they have insinuated themselves into many of our most important institutions. And and their money uh, has been uh, uh, spread around. And I think it is corrupt. I think it's corrupted media. Sometimes I see stories uh, about the horrors of China, the evil, it is evil, of China. And it's written in very passive ways. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, past almost, uh, you know, non, non-vibrant language to den, da- dampen down uh, the, the understanding of what is going on. Uh, and uh, this kind of tyranny uh, cannot be allowed to, to, if never again is going to mean anything, and it's not, never again is not just about anti-Semitism, it's about preventing the kind of horrors that we are seeing here. Uh, and uh, I just find myself... Um, here, here's the irony. I remember when the opening to China took place, and the idea was, well, if they liberalize their economy, I've been to China five years ago before a lot of this came out or before I was really that aware of it. Uh, I was there for about three weeks. And I, and I really came to understand, uh, you know, how the government controls everything. It, it, nothing like seeing it in person. But they're not communist anymore. They're fascist. It's really got a vibrant private market uh, system, but it is completely uh, – dependent on the goodwill of the government. They must cooperate with the government. They must uh, support government actions when the government tells them to. I mean, there's stories of like TikTok, the uh, the app that allows you to uh, 
take videos and post them, they're also sending that data to the communist Chinese. So if you're using TikTok, you're being spied on. You may not care, but th but that's happening. And and the irony is that we thought, well, when they open up their economy and, and they start getting prosperity, which has happened, uh, they will become more like us because the people will demand political freedom. And the irony is, instead of China becoming more like us, I'm afraid we're becoming more like China. That is, you're beginning to see speech repressed. You're beginning to see... Uh, the kind of uh, promotion for authoritarian top-down uh, governance that uh, really is not in accord with the democratic traditions of this country. And it's uh, I think it's something of great concern. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you think of, uh, of all the talk of misinformation and disinformation over the past five years used as a pretext to silence open discussion. Uh, again, whether right or wrong, I mean, there are plenty of people with wrong ideas. But, you know, when I think about conversations like the one we're having right now, the question is, you know, whether people with wrong ideas, no matter how many people are interested in hearing them, uh, should be effectively cast out, banned from public life. I mean, there are still stereotypes right. about, you know, the Spanish Inquisition or the, you know, the, the Vatican's index of prohibited books that people will throw around as if these are relevant to anything in modern life. And yet we're at the same point now where, you know, by and large. Or, or the Hollywood blacklist. Some of the very people who are most active in cancel culture think the Hollywood blacklist was terrible, which it was. But they're engaging in things just as bad. No, it's, it's amazing. I remember seeing uh, just a couple days ago the, uh, the Nielsen ratings for the, uh, the end of 2021. Uh, and this was, this was being shared around widely. But Joe Rogan, you know, the Joe Rogan experience, his podcast uh, has something like 10 or 12 million uh, average viewers per show. That's amazing. And then you, you know, the, the bar chart showed his bar that you know way out to the right, and then everybody else from say, you know, if we want to consider Rogan not mainstream media necessarily because <laughs> on Spotify he is obviously, but then you look at the traditional mainstream media of Tucker Carlson and Hannity and and Laura Ingram and Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and you know Brian Stelter at CNN, all these folks, you know, they have almost nothing. You know, the CNN primetime is like less than a million viewers. Uh, even Tucker Carlson, who I think is the biggest of the pack, is just over three million or so. Uh, so Rogan is out there quadrupling their listenership, and I have to wonder why, because he's providing an open forum for discussion. People are hungry for that, and and the answer to to bad speech is better speech. I mean, that's the whole tradition of the United States. If, if you know, if somebody's saying things that are erroneous or uh, despicable, you know, rebut them. You don't cancel them. You don't censor them, uh, particularly when they're engaged in legal activities. I mean, if they want to uh, put a formula for, uh, you know, the way to poison a city, maybe, yeah, then you would. But, but those should be few and far between. Right, and those are the sorts of things you can have real legal action against. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think the, the reporting on China is really key. I appreciate everything you've been doing to highlight that. And, and uh, I just interviewed Nina Shea, um, who is a real expert on religious persecution, in China for the Humanized Podcast, and I urge people to listen to it. It's really an eye-opener. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these things concern, you know, it, it's basically a large debate about statism, right, Wesley? There's a lot of folks yep. on the pro-life issues where they'll they'll basically take a statist attitude right now because the for, from their perspective, uh, the state ruling, the ruling elite, have given them a victory. Uh, and so if you're in Oregon and you love assisted suicide, you're going to be sort of pro-state. Uh, you know, or if, or if you're uh, pro-abortion, you're going to really favor strong centralized state power that has the ability to prohibit 
pro-life states from being pro-life in their law and policy. You know, with the I, I've been laughing a little bit with the uh, Mississippi Dobbs case coming up, Mississippi. I've been seeing very liberal uh, pundits talking about unelected judges. <laughs> Un- yeah, unelected judges, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, we used to talk about that. <laughs> Wasn't that the whole idea that they should not be elected to, to insulate them from political pressure? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's an amazing thing. I mean, the uh, the Dobbs case is something we'll continue to talk about, and and we should probably have you on to talk more about as the the decision gets closer. But um, you know, and if you haven't followed the Dobbs case in terms of AUL's work, uh, definitely worth doing. Visit aul.org/dobbs. Uh, learn about the work we've done in the case. Everything from filing uh, two Supreme Court amicus briefs. Uh, one on behalf of uh, 220 plus members of Congress, and the other just making the case real straightforwardly uh, why it's time to reverse Roe v. Wade um, and at minimum allow states that are pro-life to be pro-life again, but uh, ideally and most justly uh, to recognize that abortion is incompatible with the Constitution uh, and with our highest ideals uh, of, of human life and liberty. Um, so yeah, visit AUL.org and learn about those issues if you haven't seen them recently. Wesley, let's shift gears finally to look ahead a little bit. Let's vision cast a little bit, if we can, on pro-life issues, um, particularly the ones you're following closely when it comes to, you know, we could, we could talk as much about the former or the latter, but both midterms and, and the state legislative sessions that are about to start. What do you think is going to really pop? Yeah, I think medical conscience is going to be uh, one of the biggest issues, and I'm incredibly concerned about it. Um, there's a case uh, in um, California called Dignity Health where a Catholic hospital was sued for refusing to allow a transgender uh, uterine transplant, I'm sorry, hysterectomy, a transgender hysterectomy. And uh, the trial court said, no, no, this is a Catholic hospital, freedom of religion, case out. But the Court of Appeals of California said, sorry, this is a case of general applicability, which uh, means that it applies to the anti-discrimination law which it was brought under, uh, which protects sexual identity, this applies to everyone. And so uh, the Catholic hospital is just as as required to not discriminate as any other hospital, and so they allowed the lawsuit to proceed. The Supreme Court of California said, yep, and the Supreme Court of the United States refused to take the case. I fear and think that there will be a big, this is California, there will be a big jury verdict uh, against the hospital, and then there will be open season on Catholic health care. The the, uh, UC system, uh, UC Health it's called, University of California, UC Health has said that in two years they're going to disaffiliate with Catholic hospitals that do not permit the the full range of services such as assisted suicide, such as uh, um, abortion and sterilization, etc., even though Catholic hospitals in California provide tremendous service to Medicaid patients, poor people, that cannot other, would not otherwise have access to UC health facilities. I think there's going to be, uh, the Biden administration is going to uh, promulgate a rule probably that would try to force all hospitals to do transgender uh, procedures and, and abortion and so forth. And so I think you'll see the medical conscience issue back at the national level, which it's which it started under the Obama administration and then the uh, Trump administration went the other direction. I think you will see attempts continuing um, to destroy the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is the only uh, law that protects uh, businesses like Hobby Lobby. 
and protects doctors from having to do some of these procedures under applicable um, administrative rules. So I think medical conscience is the issue uh, that I'm most concerned about uh, in the coming year and that I'll be working on quite a bit and keeping a close eye on. The conscience issues are, I think, really tough for people to grapple with because it's it's essentially what it's doing, you know, anytime these are raised is it's putting judges or state lawmakers, and that's best case, uh, in a position where they have to um, try to make basically uh, technical uh, or moral um, decisions or come to moral conclusions about issues that, that they may just not have background in, right? Uh, and even when they're purportedly, you know, it's simply a, a legal matter um, of a state constitution uh, or nationally. But, e- but even more so, Tom, it's preventing people of good faith and goodwill from acting on their own moral principles. Well, but that's just uh, it, though, right, Wesley? It's a debate about yeah. whether people individually, in a sense, can have moral principles on which they right. should be able to act. Uh, that, that may be simply to restate it. I mean, in World War II, pacifists, religious pacifists, were allowed to not be drafted and allowed not to provide any support for the war effort, which was an existential issue, because religious freedom was deemed so important. And yet now we're in a place where you're going to force Catholic hospitals, if this continues under its current direction, to either stop being Catholic or close or sell. I mean, those are, those are going to be the three choices, and, and I'm bringing up Catholic because most people understand what Catholic moral pr- principles are, whether or not they agree or disagree. Catholic hospitals provide tremendous benefit. The money that went to build them was donated quite often by very wealthy Catholics because they wanted a place where Catholic health care could be practiced. And now you have the secular side of this society saying we're not going to allow that different morality. You have to follow our morality, and it's utilitarian, and it is hedonistic, and it is pro-abortion, and it is pro-euthanasia, and it is all the transgender issues, regardless of your own personal moral principles. And if you, and by the way, doctors, if you don't want to practice, uh, provide an abortion when you're asked for one, get out of medicine. Ezekiel Emanuel, one of the most powerful bioethicists in this country, wrote that in the New England Journal of Medicine, the most prestigious medical journal in the country. This is all on the table. And a lot of people are going to have to decide between their faith their moral principles, and their careers if this continues. Well, and I think you're highlighting a key thing, too, which is that there, there's a real incumbency upon anyone who would stand up for things like conscience rights to educate themselves and to not find themselves uh, like babes in the woods against the, the forces of, of advocates like Ezekiel Emanuel. You know, the, the result, uh, say, of Catholic hospitals going bankrupt or being forced to sell and functionally liquidate through merger that's an intended result, right? Like yep. there's often conversation in conservative or libertarian circles about the dangers of unintended consequences. You know, people just kind of stroke their chin as they talk about it. Uh, and they act as if it's this sort of like, uh, you know, it's the say, it's debating how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. It's just this abstract, you know, the, these things. But when we talk about the, the practical results of this, the closure of these health systems is the intended result of state action, precisely as you're saying, by folks who have a different moral worldview. It's not that the state's coming in with a neutral position saying, we're just, you know, like Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearings, we're just, you know, umpires calling balls and strikes. That's not what the state's doing anymore, uh, whether it's California or the federal government uh, when it comes to conscience protections. They're deciding what's good and what's not. 
And the goal, by the way, in my view, and I've written this in First Things, I've written this in National Review and other places, is to drive pro-life doctors out of healthcare, pro-life nurses out of healthcare, pro-life pharmacists out of healthcare, and to keep pro-life students from becoming doctors, from becoming nurses, because they're telling people with that moral view, if you want to be part of the medical profession, you're going to have to give that up. And a lot of very qualified people will not go into medicine, and a lot of very good doctors who would have continued to work for years will retire instead, and that will be a brain drain that will hurt every one of us. That's right. Yeah. And, and to illustrate this very clearly, what you're talking about is a situation where, you know, if a state like California gets its way on conscious protections, uh, their vision of them, you can't be a 20 year old nursing student and become a nurse uh, without participating, observing, assisting in an abortion, for instance. Um, right. And, you know, we can imagine what's coming next in many states. Uh, which will be, you know, if you haven't uh, euthanized somebody, if you haven't assisted in a suicide, well, you're really not up to the latest standards in medical care, and therefore, you know, maybe your license should be revoked. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, some of the the laws on assisted suicide provide for medical conscience, but they're beginning to be uh, pulled back. And once and if, I'm hoping it won't happen, but if the society ever generally accepts euthanasia-assisted suicide, medical conscience will be on the chopping block, as it has been in Canada, as it has been uh, in some other places, uh, Australia in particular. In Australia, a doctor and if you in Victoria and you are asked for an abortion, you have to provide that abortion or you have to refer that patient to a doctor you know will provide that abortion. And there have actually been doctors uh, punished uh, ethically for refusing to refer. And uh, that is uh, uh, the future here, as well as other places, unless the uh, medical conscience and religious uh, freedom of expression and freedom of um, uh, uh, action uh, is protected. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a desperate need to be wise on these issues and to realize that— Free exercise of religion, that's what that's about. Well, and what's needed, though, is not just sort of a, a sort of limited freedom, sort of like sanctuary zones or, you know, like the equivalent of like, here's the zoo where these people who think this way can live and, you know, <laughs> enjoy what we give them from time to time. Uh, but we really need uh, to rearticulate what it means, you know, what this differing vision that was once the predominant American vision uh, for healthcare. Uh, for moral issues is. Right. And the reason, by the way, it seems to me that they are so adamant against medical conscience isn't that so many doctors won't do these procedures. Uh, Most of the time, other doctors could be found. It's the message communicated that they find to be a burning fire. The idea that if a doctor says no to an abortion, that the doctor is communicating, I'm sorry, that's wrong. And that is what they find most unacceptable. This is in an age where, you know, you can Google uh, not just how to get to the local doctor, but if you're in a case where you go to a local clinic of some kind and the, the doctor or nursing staff or whatever is not willing to refer you for something uh, for moral reasons or otherwise, you know, you pull out your phone again and Google somewhere else. So this idea that, you know, like you need the referral from one particular medical practitioner in order to get whatever this thing is, maybe an abortion, is comical today, right? And so you see, why would it be focused on so much? Precisely because it is it is a convenient measure of political and social control over those with differing or dissident viewpoints. And it's a, um, a method of uh, saying, okay, if you're going to be part of this civil community, 
you have to follow these particular precepts. Uh, I, I sometimes liken it to uh, the ancient um, when when the Romans were saying, "Okay, you got to participate in Caesar worship." Right. Uh, you, we don't care if you actually believe that Caesar was a god. We don't believe Caesar was a god. But what you need to do is you need to put that pinch of incense into the fire because that means you're part of us. And if you refuse to put that incense into the fire, that means you are, you know, you're an insurrectionist or you're, you're somebody who, uh, who, who opposes the moral order. So it's a symbolic act as much as anything. But it's really important because, again, getting to human exceptionalism, that's how we think. These are moral principles that only human beings engage in. And the idea that you want to break somebody else's moral principles as a, as a, a, a cost of uh, being able to be a doctor or be able to be a nurse or be able to be a teacher is really reprehensible. And it's, it's not American. That's not the American way. Wesley, you know, you uh, started out your career in law, and I think your your practice as an attorney, I I think, uh, has lent you know really the the basis that for which you know you write with such clarity um, and and poise. Uh, it's it's distinctive in a world of uh, a lot of jargon and a lot of hyperbole um, that you can cut right to the heart of an issue in so many cases. So I, I every time I read one of your pieces, I, I imagine you're kind of in the courtroom of public opinion, you know, making the well, case to the jury. Thank you. That's uh, actually uh, how I look at it. I, I, uh, when I used to prepare cases, I would try to make it so they were understandable. That's certainly how I write my books. I write my books and prepare for my book writing in the same way I used to prepare for litigation. Um, and I, I, I try to bring clarity and I try to bring understandability and a little bit of humor into to my writing because I want it to be readable so that people can understand the importance of what we're addressing. Well, with that in mind, then, I'm curious, you know, as we think about, you know, the, the upcoming midterms are going to be happening sooner than, than we expect. And certainly right now we're, we're phasing into state legislative sessions. So state lawmakers uh, across the country are coming together in, in state houses and the capitals uh, to consider laws across the range of issues, certainly across the range of pro-life issues. What would your advice be for folks uh, to help recover maybe this classical idea, as I think of it, you know, it's like that, that the law is a teacher, that the law is pedagogical, that the law is normative, that these are not things to be shied away from, that our, the, the extent of our pro-life laws should not merely to be to create zoos or reservations upon which we can live in a limited way, but to actually teach moral norms. If you're a state lawmaker, how do you, what kind of courage, what kind of uh, a shot of confidence can you give them? Well, I think <laughs> it depends on the state. Uh, I have found, in, in, uh, when I, just as an example, when I was involved, deeply involved in the uh, embryonic stem cell debate, and I would testify around the country, um, we would often uh, go before the hearing to uh, meet with often, usually Republican uh, members, and we would tell them what the uh, other people were going to say, show this is not true, and so forth, and and uh, tell them, you know, try to help prepare them for the questions. And they'd say, okay, this will be great. And then when the actual hearing would occur, they wouldn't say a word. I mean, it, it happened several times. And, and I do think that what people need uh, is to uh, stand up with the legislators who are on their side, give them props, hold them up, but also set down expectations that, you know, we're going to be here for you, but you have to be here for us. And the idea that you can somehow pretend to 
to uh, pursue a per- particular approach, but then when the uh, the rubber meets the road, when it's really needed, you somehow uh, go neutral or you're absent. Uh, that has to be told that's unacceptable and you can lose your job because we will not support you just because you say you're, let's say, against assisted suicide. You have to act it in your legislation and in your voting. And also, again, uh, as we discussed earlier, I think people need to broaden their horizons about what, you know, when you say you're pro-life, you're saying something quite profound, and it isn't limited, it's broad. And And I think I think a lot of the state life pro-life leaders that I've worked with are aware of this, so certainly the ones in Texas, Michigan, um, uh, Kansas, uh, other places. I'm not, you know, I don't want to leave anyone out, but but otherwise I could maybe name all 50 states. I hear you. But, uh, but they're aware of it, but, I, but sometimes I wonder whether the uh, rank and file are, and it's time for, in my opinion, people who are wanting to be part of this activity to broaden their jurisdiction beyond what they're used to and what perhaps they're comfortable with. Sounds like it's time to study up then, huh? Yeah, you know, you it, it's something you have to, you can't just say, okay, I've done this, now I'm going to go watch a repeat of, uh, of Mary Tyler Moore. It's something you have to really work at, particularly since the other side have a lot of very highly paid activists who whose jobs it is to do that. Pro-life people have far fewer paid people and rely on volunteer efforts but this is a calling for people and if it's a calling then you got to answer the call yeah no that's right i think it's if you view this as the uh the slavery issue or the civil rights issue of this era which uh, many do uh you know then it's it can't just be the case if you're a state lawmaker or on the staff of of any uh, elected lawmaker you can't just treat it as if it's like, you know, well, at one, we've got the state transportation issue, and then at two, we've got the municipal funding budget, and at three, we've got, uh, you know, something about conscience, and then at four, we're knocking off to play golf. You know, it's, it's not just one other issue on the, on the slate for the day. Uh, it's got to be something that's, that's approached in a really distinctive way. I know. Uh, and that's why I like your podcast, by the way, because you do hit a lot of issues, and I think that's important. Well, it's a testament to uh, the work that America's Center for Life has done since the beginning. Uh, you know, the founders of, of AUL uh, built a better than they knew, as the saying goes, uh, and, you know, really did build, I think, a, a visionary and prophetic voice here. Um, AUL, Wesley, as you know, I mean, we were speaking about uh, issues of assisted suicide, euthanasia, um, patients' rights. Way back in the 70s, uh, the founders commented on this. They said, you know, a nation that accepts the logic of abortion, the logic that the inconvenient can be dehumanized, can be eliminated. You know, there's no limiting principle there. That's going to flow across the whole spectrum of issues. Uh, and we need to build an organization that's capable of, of speaking to that, witnessing to it, and uh, recovering justice uh, wherever possible. Um, and I think it's a testament to now, in particular with Katie Glenn, our government affairs counsel, and all the good work she does on the state level and with state lawmakers. So if you are uh, in a state house somewhere, or if you're here in Washington and you need help or you're looking for perspective on how to enact uh, strong pro-life law and policy, reach out to us. Uh, just email info at AUL.org or visit our website, look up Katie Glenn and contact her. Uh, we're always happy to work with, with any and all uh, of goodwill on the, uh, the human rights issues. Wesley, something you know we do every episode is our shot of gratitude. What's something you're grateful for these days? My life. I'm getting to that point where uh, every year is a gift. 
I've gone past the three score and ten. <laughs> so I'm very uh, grateful that I have life and health, and uh, I, I'm able to have a a fulfilling experience with my wife, and um, and and uh, that would be it. That's beautiful. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful. Uh, I think in particular, uh, of course, for you, Wesley, and for our conversation here today. But I'm grateful also at this time. Uh, of the latest COVID variant, uh, that it seems as if it is the least virulent so far. Um, you know, I was reading a study the other day um, that uh, that at least at the time hadn't been censored, uh, but I think it was from a New England Journal or somewhere like that, and they were commenting on the fact, it was New York Times actually, and they were commenting on the fact that uh, uh, the infection in particular and the latest variant in the lungs seems to be like one-tenth of what it was yeah, in the original it, it's, COVID. Uh, it, it's apparently, hopefully, that continues, right? Yeah, right. Well, and that's what uh, what, what our mutual friend, Dr. Uh, Curiati, uh, who you mentioned earlier, has been such a great witness on. And uh, we'll link to his, uh, his sub stack as well, uh, because he's a great voice on these issues of pointing out that this is what you want with a pandemic. You want it to lose its virulency over time and eventually to taper out. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for this great conversation. And I'm really grateful for all your advocacy across the issues. Well, thank you for having me on, Tom. I appreciate it. All right, if you enjoyed our conversation with Wesley J. Smith of the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, just drop us an email at life at AUL.org. And if you're still listening, visit AUL.org slash Oasis to learn about how you can support America's United for Life with a monthly gift. Learn about what your gift does, how it helps us do more good work across the human right to life issues and support this show. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.